Well, I'm going to continue on from where I left off last night. And um, a few of you guys were not here, so uh, I'll do a small little recap. I don't know how small I can do, but I'm going to do a little small recap. Don't make comments there. Okay, so what I went over last night were five different ways to look at the love of God. And the first one we dealt with was mainly from his creation aspect. And the thought that from Genesis 1 to 31 where he said every, he looked at everything he made and it was good, it was very good. And the point is, is that from the beginning of time when he first hovered over the earth and decided to put all that was in it, all of it was done for love. Everything was created for love and by love. He had no other agenda but love. The second way that we can look at his creation, I mean his love, is the love the father has for the son and then the son has for the father. For in essence, God is in love with himself. If we look at how extravagantly the father loved the son and how the son loved the father back, we will see a very amazing love. And a lot of times, especially as oneness people, we don't want to break down the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in their own capacity. But he created it that way, so we might as well embrace it and see what he's offering us there. It was a relationship. And remember that everything God does is about relationship. It is about intimacy. So if you're lacking intimacy in a relationship with him, you're lacking what he created you for. Our relationship is supposed to mimic the relationship the son had with the father. We're supposed to have that same extravagant love. And in that, he said he gave the son everything. Therefore, we have everything. The problem is, is we don't really embrace the everything. The third point, and I really am summing it up, um, is God's redemptive stance toward the fallen world. When he gave us his son, that wasn't, you know, just a light thing that we often throw around with John 3 and 16, but that was a very complex plan that he put together. That was an orchestration from the point that we walked away from him and we wounded him and he said, I have to get these people back because I created them for love because I'm love. So I need them. They really need me, but I want them. So I have to come up with a scheme and a plan to get them back, and that's where Jesus entered the scene. Because he had to then give himself in the form of love for us to be loved back. The fourth way is God's effective in selecting love towards his elect. He chose us just to love us, just to love us. He has no hidden agenda. He's not trying to trick us. He just wants to love us. And I think that that is just so astounding that we can't even grasp it. We have to believe it's something else there. There's some other reason besides love that he called us. So we come up with a whole lot of reasons. Yet he's like, I never told you that. The fifth way is God's love is magnified in obedience 
which leads to fellowship with Christ. And the reason why we are obedient to him is, is mainly just so that we can have his fellowship. We're not supposed to keep the commandments so that we don't go to hell. We're supposed to keep the commandments just to show, us, show him how much we love him. And when we do it out of a point of, let me just stay out of hell, then your following him has lost the point. We think he should be impressed because we've impressed ourselves. That, oh, I'm not doing X, Y, and Z anymore. And he's like, oh, that's it? But what happened to the love? What happened to the relationship? So today, I'm going to break down. And really, we do have that tape, so we're going to sell the CD. Um, Because it was really too much for me to try to act like I was going to cap it up real good. But... um, where I'm coming from today, the title that I have is to know, to know God is to love God. To know God is to love God. Why do I choose not to know him? Why does it continue to be difficult for you to surrender to perfect love? Not just believe or feel but actually surrender to his love, to lay myself down completely and pick up only God. You simply cannot bask in divine love and not be affected. And we often want to rush God's program. We often don't want to just sit and beg him to come and fill the space. We want it to be quick. We want to jump, we want some beats, we want noise. The silence, we don't know what to do with that. We don't know how to just sit. Because then I'm scared what's about to happen. I'm a little nervous by silence. But sometimes you have to just be silent and sit and wait for him to come. Because you've got to prove to him you really want him there. We've gotten used to not really wanting him there. We want a generic fix. We want church as usual. Just let's do the thing that we've always done, and that's good for me. I don't want to just sit and and wait for him to show up. I'll just create a fake Jesus, and I'll create a fake anointing so that I can run and shout and maybe throw out a couple of lyrics of a tongue, and I'll feel good. But he was never there. You've got to figure out what true presence is. And a lot of times we've lost what that is. All we know is the manufactured presence, which is no presence at all. Genuine knowing, which is a personal knowing, involves much more than head knowledge. It involves a relationship. It involves the heart. If God is love, he cannot truly be known apart from his love. He cannot be known neutrally. You can't just be like, oh, it's Jesus. Okay. Oh, I'm saved. If you're that bleak about being saved, you don't know him. If your relationship is just like, yeah, I got baptized, I got the Holy Ghost, go to church every Sunday and Wednesday. Wow. That's all you know about him? That's how deep he's affected you? And then every blue moon you can come up with a testimony of how he maybe healed your body, saved your mama, something like that. You don't know Jesus. 
Stop fooling yourself. One cannot observe him from a distance and know him. To do so is to fail to genuinely encounter his love. To encounter his love, it must be done up close and personally. If our experience of God is limited to our thoughts about him, we have not genuinely encountered God. And if we confuse our thoughts about God with personal knowing of God, we have confused theology with spiritual experience. And remember in the scriptures, God often talks about the experience of him. We get so caught up and able to quote the scriptures, but we never experience him. What do you know about God? Without a shadow of a doubt that no one can shake from you. Do you know him in the volume of the book? Not just one or two scriptures. We are often content with the fact that we have been baptized and received the Holy Spirit, but we are missing the ongoing spiritual experience, which is why for us to feel any type of anything, we got to go all the way back to when we first got saved. Remember when, take me back, oh Lord, why you got to go back? And you going back 10, 15 years to get a shake. That's the only way a tear falls. See, you should be having ongoing. It should be a continuous learning, a continuing experience that then doesn't even have to be compared to the next one. That was like, man, that was Jesus right there, and that's Jesus right there, and wow, look how good and big and awesome he is. If you're not seeing him like that, that's because you don't know him. I want everyone to go beyond just a belief that he is God into an experience that I know him personally. Listen to what Paul says to those who he ministered to in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. When I think of the wisdom and scope of his plan, I fall down on my knees and pray to the Father of all the great family of God, some of them already in heaven and some down here on earth, that out of his glorious unlimited resources, he will give you the mighty inner strengthening of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts, living within you as you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you be able to feel and understand, as all God's children should, how long, how wide, how deep, and how high his love really is. And to experience this love for yourselves, though it is so great that you will never see the end of it or fully know or understand it, and so at last you will be filled up with God himself. Can you really say that you know the depth and the height and the length of God's amazing love? Can you say that your roots are planted strictly in the love of God? And that you have experienced it and that now you are just full of God? Not tradition, not church, but God. 
That's what he wanted. In the messenger translation of 18 and 19, that verse, it says, you'll be able to take with you all, I'm sorry, you will be able to take in with all Christians the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. Now glory be to God, who by his mighty power at work within us is able to do far more than we would ever dare to ask or even dream of, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, or hopes. May he be given glory forever and ever through endless ages because of his master plan of salvation for the church through Jesus Christ. So why do we fight this kind of knowing? The love we believe to characterize God often does not seem to translate, translate well from theory into practice. The scriptures sound good, yet we often don't live them. Yet we often don't really believe them. And the belief part is what gets us. Because we feel bad because we say, I don't believe what he said. But if you can say, I don't really believe it, then maybe he can prove himself to you. But you got to start with honesty. Something that's really not common in the church. I believe one reason is that we are afraid. Fear and love stand in a complex relationship to each other. Ever since the fall, the human struggle has been to escape from the spirit of fear and to embrace the love of God. The first thing that Adam and Eve did was hide from God after they betrayed him. Genesis 3, 9 through 10, God called to man, where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. We're still afraid, naked and hiding. Even though we are purchased by love, clothed in his righteousness, and free to move in the presence of God, why won't we embrace this? Why are we still scared and running and hiding? 1 John 4, 18 through 19, there is no fear in love. Dread does not exist, but full grown, complete, perfect love turns fear out of doors and expels every trace of terror. For fear brings with it the thought of punishment. And so he who is afraid has not reached the full maturity of love, is not yet grown into love's perfect, I mean, love's complete perfection. We love him because he first loved us. And you remember what I said last night, if you cannot embrace how much he loves you, you cannot love him back. It does not work the other way around. If you do not believe that God extravagantly, endlessly, is head over heels in love with you, then you, there is no way you can say, I love you, Jesus. Because he has to teach us how to love him. And if you cannot embrace his love, you cannot give love back as much as we try. How is it that we claim that we bask in the love of God, yet we slither in fear? 
We must not believe that there is no fear in love. We hold on to our fears to the extent that we are afraid of not having fears. We believe that life is best lived with some fears. We just call it cautious or realistic, but in essence, we are just afraid. Before your mind goes, one might say that the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and we should fear the one who can destroy our body and soul in hell. Yet the fear the Bible speaks of is reverence, to be in awe and amazement of the bigness of Jesus. Yet even though I have said that, some are more comfortable with an unfriendly God who wants to keep them in their place by placing misfortunes in their paths. No matter how many scriptures say the opposite, we still want our thought about God to supersede what he has said about himself. I have to believe that God is out to get me. I'd rather embrace that than that he loves me. One of the things that blocks us from gaining freedom from fear is that most fearful people don't think themselves as being afraid. When I always ask people they have a decision, where we want to go with this, I always, the first question I generally always ask is, what are you afraid of? Nine times out of 10, I'm not afraid of anything. Then they come up with all this terminology to go around the word fear. And I say, just call it what you like. It's fear. Most people in bondage to fear do not recognize the true nature of their inner distress. Fear has many faces. Some people fear intimacy, while other people fear solitude. Some fear loss of control, while others fear a loss of image. Some fear the strength of their feelings while others fear the loss of some comforting feeling. Some fear attention, while others fear neglect. Some fear life, while others fear death. Some fear pleasure, while others fear pain. And some fear loss of love, while others fear love itself. So let's look at the dynamics of fear. A Danish philosopher and theologian suggests that one, Fear occurs when the human spirit is afraid of itself. Two, fear is often a substitute for guilt. And three, guilt always results in an inhibition of love. The idea of being afraid of oneself points to the inner conflict that lies at the core of fear. Although the object of one's fears may seem to be external, the real source of fear is internal. The danger is within. The enemy is one's own self. Often the part of the self that is most disturbing for people plagued with fear is their emotions. One important feeling that often lies at the root of fear is guilt. The part of the self that has felt like it has failed or done something dreadfully bad is the most dangerous feeling. 
However, these feelings are not usually conscious, but they tend to seep into our consciousness by fear. Fear is something, sorry, fear is sometimes the price we choose to pay to eliminate the guilt. When we are hurt or wounded as children, we assume that we had to do something wrong for this to happen to me. We do not have the ability to think outside of ourselves for cause and effect. If I am abandoned, it is my fault. If I'm abused, it is my fault. If I am neglected, it is my fault. What occurs unconsciously is the thought that I am so dangerously powerful that I could cause others to behave irresponsibly and abusively. This is why we carry so much guilt. And as irrational as it seems from an adult perspective, we hold on to these thoughts and feelings with force. We have not let the perfect love of God expel the terror. Instead of placing that at God's feet, we hold on to it, possibly because we still believe it's true. It needs to be true so we don't have to question everything else in our lives. If I allow love to tear this down, then what else do I have to give up? Who will I be without these faults? Becomes the fear. I don't want God to turn me upside down and inside out. I want him, but he must fit my thoughts. He must not make me uncomfortable. Unresolved guilt always damages the capacity of love. The reason for this is that the guilty self feels that it deserves punishment. It also feels like a dangerous self. Unconscious guilt makes me feel that I have to withdraw from others lest I damage them by my love. I must withdraw from God because he is unaware of how tainted I really am. This leads to self-preoccupation, and the result is always a serious impairment of my ability to give and to receive love. So let's go back to 1 John 4 and 18. He said, there is no fear in love. Dread does not exist. But full-grown, complete, perfect love turns fear out of doors and expels every trace of terror. For fear brings with it the thought of punishment, and so he who is afraid has not reached the full maturity of love. It is not yet grown into love's complete perfection. Love is the antidote to fear. The perfect love of God must be understood. We must understand that there are no strings attached to it, God simply loves us. He created us for a love relationship with himself, and nothing that we can do or not do would change the love he bears for us. Like I said last night, 
that even if he sends us to hell, he's still in love with us. And that's why that's so sad for him. We always think God being angry. He's really not. He's more wounded by us than ever angry. So can you imagine him having this extravagant love for us, putting a plan together that is perfect? And then we say, but Jesus, it's not quite the plan I want. But then he can't deny himself, and he cannot deny the plan and justice. So even though he loves us that much, if we keep refusing him, and we go all that as far as we having to go to hell, He's still in love with us in hell. Just sad that he got to send us there. Grace, the unmerited favor, is an alien to the human psychology. We want to get our house in order and then let God love and accept us. We want our works to merit his love and grace. The way we resist grace helps us understand the fear of love. We fear perfect love because we fear surrender. And perfect love demands surrender. My relationship with God cannot mimic the relationship Jesus had with the Father because Jesus surrendered himself to God. We don't want to do that. I don't want to say your will, not my will be done because I'm afraid of what his will is. And since I deserve punishment, then his will must be to crush me. But the bottom line is that perfect love meets me where I am. And as I only open my heart and receive the love that he deeply has for me the love that I deeply long for. It is surrender to love that I really resist. I can accept some measurements of love as long as it doesn't upset my basic framework of my world. The framework is that people get what they deserve. I want to earn what I get. I don't want a handout. I don't even want God to see me as a charity case. My guilt tells me I don't deserve this. And my fear tells me this is far too good to be true. I would rather see a God that wants me to be afraid of him than a God that wants me to reverence and worship him. I am comfortable with fear. I know I am guilty and I refuse to be cleansed. If I am cleansed, then I have to accept that I am lovable, and I fear this terribly. God does not want us to stand back in fear. What he desires is respectful intimacy. He wants us close enough to him that we know his heart, close enough to hear his heartbeat. He wants to look into our eyes, and he wants us to look into his. And he wants you to believe that he loves you. 
see him looking at you with nothing but love. For if you ask yourself the question, when God looks at you, what does he think? Do you think he's disgusted? Do you think he's like, dang, they keep falling short? Or do you think he looks at you and he says, but I love you? Love you. Not a little baby love, but a love that would die for you. Do you think he sees that when he looks at you? When you're praying, what do you think he thinks? What do you think he feels? Is he mad? Does he want to get you? Or does he really just want to love you? Isaiah 41 and 10. Don't panic. I'm with you. There's no need to fear, for I am your God. I'll give you strength. I'll help you. I'll hold you steady. Keep a firm grip on you. Zephaniah 3 and 17. Your God is present among you, a strong warrior there to save you. Happy to have you back. He'll claim you with his love and delight you with his songs. Isaiah 43, 1 through 5. Don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called your name. You're mine. When, you're in, when you are in over your head, I will be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end. Because I am your God, your personal God, the Holy of Israel, your Savior. I paid a huge price for you. That's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I sell off the whole world to get you back. Trade their creation just for you. So don't be afraid. I am with you. That's what you got to sit and meditate on. That's what you got to put in your mind day after day that I am with you. You do not have to be afraid anymore. I don't want to punish you. I take no pleasure in punishment. I didn't do this for punishment. I did this for love. I know, I, you know, usually I give assignments and I would give a way to execute this stuff and I was sitting there racking my brain trying to come up with an assignment. I failed. Uh, but for you to release the fear and step into the love, you simply must just get in the presence of God. Over and over and over again. I'm talking about in the presence. Complete abandon in God. You've got to carve out time for you to pour your heart to him. You've got to carve out time 
to say, forget everything I think I'm supposed to do in the face of God and do the opposite. No more trying to come up with clever, quick, cute prayers. No more saying, well, I read three verses today and I'm a fast in another month and I come to church every week. It is time for us to really get in the presence of God. And you probably will usually have to do that by yourself. And I'm talking about praying. I'm talking about talking to God. Bearing your soul to him. That's if you really want him. That's if you really want something different. If you really want to know him and be moved by his love. And maybe start living life a little different. But you got to get tired. You got to get tired and say, this is really not working. The whole salvation thing that I thought I was jumping in on hasn't quite panned out quite right. Because I'm not really feeling all that at all. But the problem is we don't want to admit that. We don't want to admit that it's become boring. That it become, it's become nothing but a ritual. To come every week. To say this is what I'm supposed to do. Because God forbid enough somebody not see me there on Sunday then they'll think I'm backslidden and then I'm going to feel bad. So let me just come and sit on the pew. Cross my leg, clap my hand, maybe wave. If I'm really pressed, I may do a little shout. But don't you want more? I mean, you have the God of all creation wanting you. Why don't you want him back? Why do you see him as work? And whenever you start seeing God as work, that means you don't know him. Because it's not work. It's beauty to be in his presence. When you see worship as, oh gosh, got to raise my hand. I got to say hallelujah a couple of times. I got to really press in. And that irritates you? You don't want him. And the, and the sad thing on his end, because you guys know I always come from, I want you to see God. I want you to feel him. Because we act like he doesn't feel. Like his feelings don't get hurt. But he's sitting there on the other side of you begging you to take him. Begging you to release whatever you have to release to embrace him. And you keep telling him, no. I don't want you like that. I'm not going to abandon all for you. I'm not giving this up for you. I want to hold on to this or that. Because you're really not that big for me. No, I don't want to go to hell. Because who does? But if that's the terms to get to heaven, then really, take my chances. Because a lot of us have been living the same way for a long time, claiming salvation. And we think God is going to be content with and accept that we let some sins go and that we're there every week. He wants more. I just hope that you guys fight for the more because it's a fight. This goes against everything that we pretty much have been indoctrinated to believe church is about. But if you can take the step and run to Jesus... 
because this is just supposed to be about him anyway. It was never supposed to be about man. It was never supposed to be about a building. It was always supposed to be just about him. So when you know that people are bigger than Jesus and what people think about you is bigger than what Jesus thinks about you, just know you missed them. But the beauty of it is that it's not over until we hit the ground. So we got chance after chance after chance to get it right. And he keeps letting us come back and come back and come back. That's how much he loves you. But if you can accept the fact that you're safe, we're safe. Safe. So why would you be afraid if you're safe? Why would you not trust him when you're safe? He's holding you. He's got you. You don't have to be afraid. When we know God and when we know his perfect love, fear completely goes out the door. For his perfect love cast out fear. Get to the point really, and really with this, is a fight. I myself has had the hugest struggle with fear. Just crippled by fear. Afraid of every doggone thing. Every little thing. Every big thing. Just afraid. And when I got to the point where I just didn't want it anymore. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of being up in the middle of the night, scared of just stupidity, creating monsters in my own head. I had to beg God to take it from me, but he didn't take it because he knew I wasn't serious. And it was the first time in my life that truly I didn't feel God at all. And I prayed and I begged and I cried and he didn't say nothing back to me. He just left me there. Because he knew in my heart I didn't really want to release it because my comfort was fear. What's your comfort? It took me about a year for him finally to speak to me and tell me you are free. Many, many prayers, many, many beggings. Just please take this from me. I really don't want it. He's like, nope, you do want it. Because look how you're conjuring this up again. The moment something happens, the first place you run, it's not to me, it's to the fear. And just like a month ago, he finally spoke to me and I got it that I am now loved by God because his love has cast out the fear. I have no reason to be afraid. And as crazy as me knowing how much he loves me, fear is always sitting next to me, trying to grab me because that is my sin. That is the thing that would cast me to hell. Being afraid. Hell over fear. 
you guys, it's not just about those little sins we got in Galatians. It is so much bigger than that. It is whatever makes us miss God. And you may be people be like, oh, you ain't hardly going to hell because you're just scared of getting something. For me, I know that I didn't know God because I was afraid. And his whole plan was for me to know him. So what's stopping you from knowing him? What is keeping God's love at bay from you? What is making the relationship be in the distance instead of up close and personal? And if you want him that bad, you will fight to get him. But will you fight? Will you struggle to get him? Because it comes down to you think he's even worth it. And I'm finished.